statement. I appreciate the work that the praise teams uh, do so we can sing and uh, worship the Lord that way. They lead us uh, to open up our voices from our heart to sing to the Lord, and that's what it's about. We're going to be doing a lot of singing in heaven, so we better get used to it here, right? And uh, so let's, uh, I thank the Lord for that, and um, so let's bow together in a word of prayer. I'm going to continue this morning with the use of the law of God to believers. Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you again for giving us the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit who indwells all those who have believed in Christ, that he's our down payment uh, until the day of redemption in which we will have new bodies in your presence and we will be singing and glorifying your name in ways that are unhindered, like in this life. But Lord, even now we can sing to you, we can praise you, we can focus our attention upon you. We can think and meditate upon the great truths in Scripture. Lord, we need this so desperately in, in our world to be able to think the way you want us to, to be able to know where we stand before you, to be able to have the promises that we can hold to by faith. Thank you, Lord for all these things contained in the Word of God that you've given to us and you've protected over these years that we know we have the Word of God. And Lord, all the promises are ours who know you. And so, Lord, I pray from today until the day you take us or you come, I pray, Lord, we'd be faithful, that we would be faithful to live for you and serve you from our heart. And I pray that you would give us a greater understanding this morning from your word, in Christ I pray, amen. So this morning as we um, consider the Ten Commandments, we have been looking at that, actually I'm past that, and we're looking now at really uh, what the Bible is saying, uh, or how the we're looking back at the Ten Commandments and how it motivates the believer to think on certain in a certain way. And the first thing I've mentioned is that the use of the law, first of all, is to show believers what Christ from love to their souls died and suffered in their place. And we looked at that last time. And then secondly, we saw that the law is useful to show believers the inexpressible deficiency in their holiness. And of course, underneath that, we saw three things. Number one, that believers... Uh, that the believer, the unrighteous believers were delusional, unrighteous sinners saved, that have to be saved by another's righteousness. And of course, we, I've said that one can, no one can be saved by their own righteousness. And of course, the destiny of, for the Christian is holiness, and then the desire for the Christian is heaven. And then we, have, we concluded uh, last time that the law, of course, the Ten Commandments, could not save anyone. It could not sanctify anyone. And it could not secure a place in heaven for anyone. The reason why is because the law is never designed to do that. And there, as the Bible says, there, there's no problem with the law. The law is good. The problem is our sinful flesh. <laughs> 
That was the problem. And so this, this morning we're going to be looking at the next two, if I get that far. And it's that the use of the law to the believer, for, uh, thirdly, would be to instruct believers what grateful service they owe to Christ and his Father. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, it says, We do not preach ourselves, but Christ and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. And of course, saying that when we look back at and realize that we have been saved from the condemnation of the law, it stirs up in us a thankfulness and a gratitude to want to serve God in the right manner, in the right way. Now, if I were to personally ask you, are you thankful? How would you reply? You may, of course, say, for the most part, yes, I'm thankful. What if I were to further ask you, to whom are you thankful? And for what are you thankful? And how often are you thankful? How would you answer that? Well, in the Word of God, turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. We're going to be looking at several passages this morning. But in the letter of 1 Thessalonians, it gives us an imperative reminder that says this. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in the Word of God, it says, In everything give thanks. But notice what else it says. For this is the, God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That is the will of God for you, to be thankful. So if I rephrase the question and ask you, have you honestly given thanks to God in everything for that less than good health or for your unrewarding job or for your less than ideal marriage or ongoing family struggle or for your unstable financial situation for not having your prayers answered just the way you would have liked? for unfulfilled dreams and unreached goals, for broken or difficult relationships, for lost opportunities. See, does anyone really need to be reminded to give thanks when all is well? Well, not really. Anyone can do that. When there's good health and abundant food and a secure and rewarding job, it's easy to give thanks See, but the problem is, even then we forget to give thanks because we take for granted and we expect all those things should be a given in life and they're not. They're all God's blessings. So the Word of God says in its wisdom literature, in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 3 and 14, on the screen, notice what it says, consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. 
So God has made both of them. So are we going to be thankful at both ends of the spectrum? We need to learn to be thankful in the day of prosperity, and we need to learn to be thankful in the day of adversity. A famous painting depicted this subject of ingratitude, and it shows a huge statue which has inscribed at the base the word ingratitude. And then surrounding this gigantic statue are men and women throwing stones at it. And yet, if you look carefully at this particular painting, one will notice that each of the persons in the picture has cradled in his left arm a tiny replica of the statue also marked ingratitude. So the lesson, of course, is being, the lesson here would be that though each of us detest ingratitude, unthankfulness in general, in principle, and in others, there is an element of it in every one of us. We need to conclude that there is much ingratitude in our life than genuine gratitude. It was the late Dr. D. James Kennedy, who was the really the founder of Evangelism Explosion. He said that the slide from God, godliness into wickedness begins with ingratitude. In the beginning of a life of sin in the heart of any person, indeed, it is one of the very worst vices. So, on the other hand, the truly grateful person would be considered a godly person. That godliness and gratitude go hand in glove. Scripture tells us that thankfulness is the most excellent sign of being filled with the Spirit of God. And remember, part of now being a Christian is that when it comes to the law, we have a the Holy Spirit living in us that enables us, gives us divine power to actually live out the commands of Scripture, to obey the Lord. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 18 and in verse number 20, the Bible says this, And do not get drunk with wine, for this is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Notice, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. That even in Thessalonians chapter 5, if we, quench, we can quench the Spirit by neglecting to be thankful to God. Of course, when I say, who are you thankful for? I mean, are you thankful to God? Are you thankful to God because he's the creator, because he's your Lord, because he's your Savior? Are you thankful every day for those very facts? It is true that a grateful person is a godly person, and, a, and godliness and gratitude in all things go hand in hand. However, it has been said that thankfulness is the least of the virtues and ingratitude the worst of the vices. It is probably thought to be an easy virtue, and yet there are few people who are distinguished for their thankfulness. What is thankfulness anyway? 
Well, thankfulness is actually three things. Thankfulness is, first of all, a feeling, a heartfelt emotion, the feeling or emotion of gratitude expressed toward God in body language, in speech, and yes, in song, in the song of our heart. Actually, Webster's Dictionary uh, says that gratitude is a feeling of thankful appreciation for favors or benefits received. A gratitude to God for his mercy. God not giving you what you deserve because he had pity on you. So that is a feeling, a feeling resigned and content for all God does to you and for us. To us and for us. So we are bound to show this kind of gratitude by our actions by our words, and by our demeanor. And then the second thing thankfulness is, is it is cheerful obedience. In the text it says, because in everything give thanks. So that is a command in Scripture. It's an imperative. And it's a most acceptable method of obedience, Cheerful obedience. Everyone who serves God must begin to praise God for a grateful heart is the mainspring of obedience. Fathers, it's Father's Day today. And uh, fathers, if, if you, this is one characteristic you need to teach your children. Teach them to be thankful in thought and word and deed and you will, if you do that yourself, you will teach them to be thankful. In, if they see it in your life every day, if they see it in your relationship with other people, if they see it when you're talking about the Lord and when you come to church, they see that you're thankful. Thankful has, being thankful has a way of just pushing out other things. Even in irksome and laborious duty, there's a cheerfulness. In sickness and pain, there's a patience. Because with God's help, we are able to praise him while in the trouble or pain, and not just after it's over. Psalm 86.12 tells us, I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and will glorify your name forever. And then also, thirdly, thankfulness would be that of remembrance. Actually, the word Thank, thank, in the English, derives the same word think. It is related to the word thought. In fact, some entomologists believe that thank is simply the past tense of think, and drank as drank is the past tense of drink. And that if we think then we will thank. But the problem is that most of us are thoughtless, and therefore we are thankless as well. We have so many things to be thankful for, and would that God would cause us to be thankful people, that we might be thankful people as well, and that we might think and not forget. See, in Scripture, it's amazing, there's many passages of Scripture that really direct us to 
be thankful by remembering. Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, I thank my God in all remembrance of you. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 4 says, In that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Make them remember that his name is exalted. So it seems like we have a tendency to forget to thank God about what he's doing in our life. And then Psalm 45 in verse number 17 says this, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give give you thanks forever and ever. In other words, listen, be thankful so you can pass on thankfulness to the next generation. Because what does it say in, in Timothy? That there's going to be in the last days people will be unthankful. So if God's people are not maintaining a thankful spirit about everything, then and then living it out and passing it on to our kids and so they can pass it on to them, no matter how wicked or far from God our generation gets and our country gets, there's still going to be a remnant of people that are thankful because they have the truth, because they have a relationship with Christ, because they know where they stand, and they know what's coming. And so because of that knowledge, they are thankful, and they never forget. A spirit-led believer never forgets the goodness of God, ever. Matter of fact, you wake up with it, go to sleep with it. You drive in your car with it. You go everywhere with it, and it is very healthy to be thankful. For what? Well, we remember that we have been delivered from the law's consequence, condemnation, the eternal benefits of the law for God's grace we can thank God for that's bestowed on others, where it says in Scripture, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Jesus. And then for the goodness and mercy of God, Psalm 107, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he's good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And what about for conversion? Thanking God for not only your conversion, but the conversion of other people, where it says in Romans chapter 6, or Romans chapter 6, which I'd really like you to turn there, uh, in verse 17 and 18, it says, But thanks be to God that through, though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you, have, you became slaves of righteousness. So, conversion, and then another passage on conversion is in Thessalonians, where it says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth, that you come to that realization as a believer, wow, that family secret, when you come to the Word of God and you say, wow, God chose me before the foundation of the world, that's pretty humbling. And you know what? If that doesn't cause thankfulness in you, I don't know what's going to. To think about that truth, that your mind fully can't wrap itself around, that God has chosen you, wow, to salvation. 
And then what about for the deliverance through Christ and indwelling sin, where it says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, the Lord does. What about victory over sin and death? To be thankful for that in 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What about the providence of God? To be thankful for that. In Isaiah, he says this, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name, for you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. The Lord providentially ordering our lives and the things that are in it. What about being thankful for the word of God? Sometimes we get we take for granted of the things that are the closest to us and that we have all around us, and it's the Word of God. Psalm 119, that long song, uh, that uh, psalm that we we read in in the in the morning service for weeks and weeks. It says, "At midnight I shall rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous ordinances." And then notice this passage. It says. In Psalm 138.2, I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth, for you have magnified your word according to all your name. That the word of God is magnified to the level of God's name. It's equal to it. That's, that's a tremendous passage of Scripture. See, he has given us life, maintained us in being, saved our souls to those who know Christ, given us to be children and made us heirs of eternal glory. Is that something to be thankful for? Well, Colossians 1.12 says, Give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And what about being thankful for faithful brethren or faithful soldiers? You know, people that... You want in your foxhole when the bullets the bullet starts flying. What about those people? To be thankful for them? Listen to what Paul says about some of his warriors. He said in, in Romans 16, verse 3 and 4, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but, I, but all the churches of the Gentiles. So he was thankful for people who were in the trenches with him, through the thick and thin, just being faithful to what they know is right from the word of God and just continuing on no matter what happens. You can count on them. Trouble comes, they're there. See, that's the kind of people you want around you in the Christian life, and those are the ones you, give, you can give the greatest thanks for. And, then, and of course, we... What about the temporary benefits we have? Food, we pray for, give thanks when, when, we, when we have food to eat before us, or we have clothing on our back, or we have a home and a bed to sleep in, or we have a car to drive, or a place to go to work, a place to go to school. These are all things. Our health, even trouble and sickness and tribulation are all areas that we ought to give God thanks And what results from this kind of giving of thanks? God is honored. 
And when the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, God's honored. Also protection from sin. A thankful person knows how to hedge against sinfulness because he's so thankful to God. His sin is magnified and he wants to repent, confess it before the Lord, thanking the Lord that he's taking care of that sin also. And even effective evangelism, not by crusty tempers or by sour looks, but a life of testimony that flows with thankfulness to God gets people's attention. You should not be thankful, but you are. Why? And then what do you do then? You tell them why you are. You give an answer of the hope that lies within you. Romans 1.8, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. So to carry out this most delightful duty, no person can give thanks always to God through Jesus Christ until they have a new heart. It's impossible. No person can give thanks to God until they have a sense of God. In this sense, it says in Psalm 52, 9, I will give you thanks forever because you have done it. And I will wait on your name for it is good in the presence of your godly ones, a person who knows God. No one can give thanks until they have a sense of complete reconciliation to God. That God is your friend, not your enemy. No one can give thanks to God until they acknowledge Jesus Christ as the only way to be accepted by God. He is the only way, the truth, and the life. No one else. So no one can fully obey this command until self is dethroned. You have to surrender yourself to the will of God. So God, please save us from ever falling into a murmuring spirit that is clearly not God's will at any time for any reason. Instead, that we would gratefully speak much about what God has done and given in our own life. We have ample amount of things that God has done in our life to be able to talk about it with others. So, in other words, the law instructs believers to be grateful to God for them becoming a Christian and the opportunity to serve him after they become a believer. Now, that that brings me back to that question that we have been looking at that kind of takes a little bit of a different direction. Are Christians under the law or not? See, that's the question. Well, I want you to all take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 7. Because what Paul does in this passage of Scripture is he gives an illustration to prove his point. So are Christians under the law? I would have to say no. And then I'll qualify that because it always has to be qualified. Notice what it says in Romans chapter 7, verse 1 through 6. It says, or... Do you not know? Here's this illustration. Brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. Here's his illustration. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, 
she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, through, though she is joined to another man. There is his illustration. Then notice what he says in verse 4 to 6. He says this, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may be joined to another. He's using marital language here. To him who was raised from the dead. So we died to the law so we, we would be married to Christ. And then verse 5. For while we were in flesh, in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But Look at verse 6. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of spirit and not in oldness of letter. So the word of God tells Christians that they died to the law. That is, Christians are no longer under the law. Christians are under grace because the law was fulfilled in Christ perfectly. God is now 100% for you. Christ covered all your sin and took all its condemnation, so the law has no ground for condemnation. So the question the Apostle Paul raises later on is, shall we then continue in sin that grace may abound? Of course, he answered, may it never be. Dead men die to sin. If you die to sin, how can you live in it? That would be his conclusion. The new birth is the writing of the law on the heart. We are no longer under it. It is under us. We become obedient people, not by taking out our list of do's and don'ts and following it, no. By the Holy Spirit's transformation of our minds with the Word of God, Christians want to know. They want to do the will of God from the heart. So as redeemed sinners... We are, we are bond slaves to a new master, and that master is Christ. We are married to Christ. For Ephesians 6, 6 says, not by way of eye service as man pleasers, as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. So in other words, summing that up, instead of serving the law, we serve the Lord and one another in love. See, love is the fruit of faith in Jesus. Faith works out in love. So if someone were to ask, what does love look like? Well, the Apostle John would tell us this. And it seems like we come full circle. This is what love looks like. If you love me, what will you do? You'll keep my commandments. So there's obedience going on here, but this is not reversed. It's not keep my commandments, then love me. It's love me and keep my commandments. So I keep the Lord's commandments because I love the Lord. As it tells us in 1 John also, 
By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And then 1 John 5, 2 says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. So saying all that, it leads us to where I began uh, when I started this series, and that is to the fourth use of the law. And it would be the law is useful to attest the truth of the believer's begun sanctification and to conform confront them to walk in the law of Christ after the inward man of implanted grace. The Apostle Paul told young Timothy, pastor, who was going to take over the Ephesian church, he said this, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So again, some will ask, as a Christian, are we to keep the commandments? Are we to live by that standard? And my answer would be no. And then I would say, actually, we are called to a live by a higher standard. And it is called in Scripture the law of Christ. For it tells us the law of God and the law of Christ is clearly suggested in this passage in 1 Corinthians, where the Apostle Paul states that he was not without the law, for he was under the law of Christ. Notice, notice what it says, to those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I may win those who are without law. So Paul was saying, as a human being created in the image of God, he was still under obligation to obey the moral law of God, of his creator, but his new position as a saved person, as a saved man, he now belongs to Christ. The law is not his master, no, his new master is Christ. His new mediator is Jesus Christ, that Christ had purchased him. He is now Christ and therefore under the law of Christ. So Christ, not the law, is the believer's master. Hence, now we live as a believer under the law of Christ. The law of God is now named the law of Christ as it relates to the Christians. Hence, the law of Christ is God's moral law in the hands of a mediator. It was the moral law of God that Christ himself was made under, it says in Matthew 5. It was the moral law of God that Christ came to fulfill in Matthew 5.17. I did not, do not think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I came to fulfill it. And then the moral law of God was that was in the heart of Christ all along, for it tells us in Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. So Jesus knew full, the full end result of God's law. And you may say, well, was that? Well, when Jesus was asked the question by the Jewish scribe, Jesus answered him from the Torah, the Shema, 
in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And what, is, what was that? It was the conversation he, uh, that we find in the Gospels in Mark chapter 12, where it says one of the scribes came in and heard him arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him what commandment is foremost of all. And Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment than these. So under the law of Christ, we are no longer sold under sin and its condemnation. Under the law of Christ, we are born again into the family of God with all its rights and privileges. We are adopted sons and daughters. Under the law of Christ, we have received the indwelling Holy Spirit sealed unto the day of redemption, and he gives us the ability to keep what God has given us and keep his commandments. Under the law of Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin. Sin is no longer your master. But the law of Christ was not a new set of laws that had taken place, that had replaced the old, but the law of God not written on hearts of stone, but now written on hearts of flesh, as Ezekiel tells us. It's hearts which desire to be obedient, not cold law, but to Christ in whom they want to affectionately love. And when they do that, they fulfill the law of God, the two great commandments of God. So those who are bound to Christ enter into a life of liberty and love as they bind themselves to his law. Christ is the reality that all the Mosaic all the Mosaic regulations foreshadowed. Christ expounds his law by calling believers to love God and to love neighbor. And the Holy Spirit of God imparts to us the law of love. In fact, while you're in Romans, turn to Romans chapter 13. Now, Paul, after all this heavy doctrine, where does, where does he go with it? In the first 10 and 11 chapters, and then he comes to chapter 13 of Romans. And he gives us a sense on what it means to live under the law of Christ. That Jesus calls us to a higher standard in relationship to the Ten Commandments. Everybody should have the Ten Commandments on their wall. And look at it every day. Because it's still the nature and character of God that's displayed in the Ten Commandments. But remember, when we look at it, we know that Christ fulfilled them all, and that if we're in Christ, that law is fulfilled in us. And now the Spirit of God gives us the ability to actually carry out the law, but with an attitude of love for God and love for people. So it begins to answer our question, 
how shall we begin to love as God does? Well, look at Romans 8, Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Notice how he, he puts it. He says, Oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. So he's, he's showing us, listen, you do these things because the law is now in your heart and the Spirit of God has given you the power and the ability to do it. You fulfill the law every time you do that. And, of course, the law has been completely fulfilled in Christ. But notice what it says there. It says, for this, how shall you love? You shall love, and therefore, notice, commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Right? But instead, persevere in the sacredness of the marriage bond, yours and your neighbor's. And you as believers are called to complete fidelity in marriage. And then what else in the verse? Commandment number six. How shall you love therefore? You shall not, you shall not murder or hate. By God's definition, hatred is, is as much murder as the lawful taking of another's life. But instead, help your fellow brother and sister in Christ keep alive and well. You as a believer are to be truthful, kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving to your brothers and sisters in Christ, and for that fact, all humanity. So just as the presence of jealousy and hatred in a life indicates that a person is of the world and in the flesh and not the family of God, just the same love And self-sacrifice indicate that such a one has passed out of the world into the family of God. And then commandment number eight in our passage. How shall you love? Therefore, you shall not steal, but help protect your brothers and sisters' possessions. How shall you love? Commandment number 10. You shall not covet, but instead rejoice in the fact that the Lord has blessed him or her and given it to them. And maybe he has not given it to you, but he's given it to them, and you're, you're rejoicing how good God is and being thankful how good God is. See, that's what you're doing. Look at verse number 9, Romans chapter 13. It says, in the middle of the verse, it says, and if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So the Bible is telling us right here, this is how we're to live as Christians. And fathers, if you teach your kids to live this way, they will be living under the law of Christ, under the law of love. If they see it in you and you practice those things, of course, not perfectly, but that is the direction of your life, then we are doing exactly what God calls us to do as believers. And then this verse of Scripture where it says in Galatians 6 in verse number 2, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. 
So, so in other words, we look all throughout Scripture, Galatians 5.14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then James chapter 2, verse 8, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well if you do that. So see, my friends, if you love Jesus, would it not follow as natural inference that you would love all those he loves? If you love Christ as you may say you do, should you not also love all Christ's church, all of Christ's people, no matter who they are, where do they come from? Yes, the answer has to be yes. And believe me, this does not come overnight. This is something the Spirit of God is doing in our life every single day. Because, you know, you may have been, uh, before you became a believer, you may have said, I was always a loving person. No, you weren't. You never loved anybody. Matter of fact, when you become a Christian, you find that out. You had hatred and animosity and revenge towards people. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God is bringing all that stuff to light and says, well, I haven't, I haven't loved anybody, but I want to, and now I have the power because of the Spirit of God to do so. Now, let, let me just wrap it up with, with this illustration. The relationship between the law of Moses and the law of Christ is this. You have the law of Moses. You notice, you notice it's lower on the scale, and the law of Christ is higher on the scale. But... Under the law of Moses, you have the civil, you have the moral, and you have the ceremonial law. All those have been fulfilled in Christ, all of them. And if they've been fulfilled in Christ, then they have also been fulfilled in the believer. But the goal of all those were always love to God and to man. That's always the goal. That was the goal in the Old Testament, but they couldn't do it because they didn't have the indwelling, permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. They failed. The whole Old Testament's about failure. You see people failing all the time. People, you said, well, man, that person could be my idol. And then at, I just got done reading Solomon again. And uh, the chapter where it says he, he multiplied wives and he built altars and he, he offered sacrifices to idols. I said, Solomon, what are you doing? I'm sitting there on my couch saying, Solomon, what are you doing? All this wisdom, all this knowledge, and you're giving it up at the end? But see, again, uh, Solomon would have came awful close to Christ if he didn't fail. We all fail because we're sinners. Every one of us failed, right? That's why we need Christ. Christ is the only one in Scripture who did not sin. He did not fail. He accomplished the will of God. He was fully obedient to the Father. And he fulfilled the law totally and completely. And so therefore, because of that, we see the scriptures, the essence of the law, namely to love and honor the Lord God and to love one's neighbor from the heart is the essence of the law. The scriptures I already mentioned but this we know, that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. They're not like the Old Testament law that laid a burden on the heart. They're freeing. Why? Because they're already fulfilled. All we have to do is do them. And then, of course, the one passage I already mentioned again, the, 
For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I think if you, you get that, if you read all these passages, they're saying the same thing. But this is the law of Christ. So do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? And you do, do you desire fellowship with them? So this is the crowning imperative virtue of the church. The source of all love is God, and so anyone claiming to know God and failing to show love to other believers, it can only mean that that person is a deceiver or just self-deceived. See, so when a church is continually endeavoring to display this virtue, we manifest the character of Christ working in and through us. No one demonstrated this in a greater way than our Lord Jesus Christ. So Christians, Christians have obtained a new life in Christ. Under the law, you and me would not have the slightest chance of performing God's commands with complete success. Why not? Your sinful nature would not allow it. It could not keep the law. It cannot obey Christ without the Spirit of God. But believers have obtained new life in Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit, and because of that, they willingly want to please and obey the one who saved them. And as Christians, we have the privilege and the power that comes from God, divine enablement to fulfill the law of Christ. So in the power of the indwelling Spirit, the Christian is given the enablement to obey God's commands and his revealed will, and this involves being filled with the Spirit and walking in the Spirit in which there must be a day-to-day yieldness to and dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Like it says in Ephesians, don't get drunk with wine, for this is rebelliousness or rebellious living, but be filled with the Spirit, right? As people let wine control them, and the end results is wacky results, right? Destructive results. But, But be filled with the Spirit, and when you're filled with the Spirit, you'll have the results that God will bring. So being filled is more accurately translated be being filled because it is a present command indicating a state to enter, not a one-time event to experience. This fulfilling describes a permeating influence of the Holy Spirit whereby your whole life, like a sponge, can be saturated with power and joy and godliness and influence and love and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And one who is full of the Spirit is one who reflects the character and the priorities of God himself. What is, when we mention the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22, it says, here's the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is, first of all, love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. So just as life within the tree causes fruit to appear, so life within the believer produces beautiful fruit. We cannot cause fruit to grow, but we can earnestly ask. Actually, we are earnestly asked to cultivate it, to weed it, to prune it, 
to protect it. Only God can produce it. It is the fruit of the Spirit that is in our lives. So Paul is not commanding us to fill ourselves with the Spirit, but to let ourselves be continuously filled by God. Let the Spirit permeate our thinking, our lives, our our entire being. And this really is a command about yielding. Yield your members of your body every day to the Spirit of God's control. Let the Spirit take over and move your life along the way God wants you to move. So you're not kicking against God's will. You're giving into God's will, willfully. So the exhortation is is similar in Galatians, where Paul simply says, walk in by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So to walk by the Spirit means to get in step with the Spirit, what the Holy Spirit is doing inside of you. And when you do that, the sins of your flesh will be minimized. That's what will happen. Yet, walking by the Spirit speaks of consistency. A walk takes time. There are no shortcuts to spiritual maturity. Being filled Being full of God's spirit requires a constant dedication to your spiritual steps. The more you pay attention to your walk, your life will be like a sailboat with the sail uplifted. The spirit will push you along and guide your journey. God will fill your submission to him with his divine holy wind. However, if you pull the sail back down due to self-will or to weak faith or even sinfulness, the wind will not avail you very much at that point. So that's what God calls us to. He calls us to be growing in biblical love. And love is the badge and character of Christianity. A Christian may advance in many areas of the Christian life, but without growth in the most important Christian distinctive, that being love, it profits nothing. So when love begins to diminish and grow cold, our sin increasingly manifests itself as we look more unlike Jesus. So how would diminishing love look? Well, we lose patience easily. Instead of long-suffering, unkindness becomes common. Sinful envy and bitterness are displayed. We defend ourselves when confronted for our lack of love. We become less courteous and more rude. We start trumping others' rights. We, we, we become easily angered. We find fault frequently. Projects become more important than people. A person becomes unwilling to confront to uh, confront when, when necessary, and they're pretty much unconcerned about the lost. So those growing in 
Jesus kind of love, which is under the banner of Christ, will only say loving words, but also do loving deeds, just as he did. So see, the law really brings us into this direction to honor and love God and love and honor our neighbor. That would be the end result. So how you doing? How, how are you doing? I admit I, I don't always do well. And I, I wake up in the morning and you say, you know, something sets you off and you're grumpy right away. And that it just sets the tone for the whole day, you know? And you're grumpy all through the day. And you're, you, you get home at night, you, you're, not, you're not satisfied with anything that happened that day. People talk to you and you, you don't even have to start a conversation with them because you don't even want to talk to them. And uh, you, you don't have nothing to say. And it's all, all because we, we become self-centered and self-seeking and selfish and we forget that God has us there for a purpose, meeting people for a purpose, to talk with them if we have time to talk with them, and to show the love, the kindness, the goodness, the magnificence of God everywhere we go. Only the Spirit of God can do that. Only the Spirit of God can overcome our selfishness and our self-will and use us. I pray that would be something God does. If fathers do these things with their children, you will do well. Let's pray. Lord, this morning I do thank you so much for, Lord, just the ability to be able to go to your word and, and see these things in the word of God. Thank you, Lord, that you have done so much on our behalf, especially, Lord, when it comes to the, the power of, of the law to condemn us, you have set us free. And you have brought us under the law of Christ. And so I pray, Lord, every day, our prayer would be, I pray our prayer would be that we would fulfill the two great commandments. Lord, we can't reverse that. We have to love you first before we can love people. Holy Spirit, help us to do that. Help us to overcome the things in our lives so we can do that. And so we can display before the world who you are. Give us many opportunities to talk to people about Christ when we manifest this character in our in-and-out dealings with people. Lord, enable us to do that. And Holy Spirit, we want to yield to you every day our flesh, our plans, what we want, our desires, and I pray you would take them over and I pray as we give them to you, you would guide us in the way that honors the Lord and gives him glory. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.